Hi everyone, I'm Lisa. And I'm Nick. And welcome to It Takes Two, the podcast where two people take two movies with the same plot or premise and watch and discuss them. And in this week's episode, we watched Ammonite and A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, so we've decided uh, for June to do LGBT movies. Yes. Is our, is our main goal. Um, so these are both movies... Um, I don't know how best to describe them. They're both movies about queer women who live in relative isolation with their mothers by the sea and another queer woman who meets them there and accompanies them on walks and then they fall in love. And they're both set in the 1800s. <laughs> Incorrect, because what? Portrait of Lady of Fire is set in the 1770s. And um, Ammonite is set in the 1840s. So they're about 70 years apart. Um, gonna... It will have said 18th century. Is that yeah. what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, that's the 1700s. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Portrait of Lady on Fire is the 1770s in France, and Ammonite is uh, 1840s in the seaside, in a seaside town in the UK. What's it called? Lime? Regis Lime or something? Something like that, yeah. I, I, I thought it was Lime when <coughs> they said it, but then... You know, I don't know. Um, one of my notes just said she sells seashells by the seashore. Yes, correct. She does. Yes, because it's a that's uh, a long-standing issue with um, uh, women not being recognised for scientific discoveries. Right. I didn't know where you were going with that. Yeah, so long-standing yeah. issues with selling. Seashells by the seashore. Your face was just like, oh no, what's no, she gonna say? No, I just have no idea where where the end of that sentence was gonna be. Yes, so they're they're both films kind of focus on the erasure of female um, works essentially because in uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire it focuses on how women are kind of erased from the history of art to yeah. some degree, and in um, Ammonite it's about how women are erased from the history of science. Science. And, and to do that, they focused on real women in science because yeah. both, um, I forgot her name, Mary. Yes. What's her last name? I, I literally blanked on her last name. Mary. Starts with A. Yeah. Anning. Mary Anning. Yeah. I have no idea why I blanked on it. Uh, so Mary Anning and Charlotte um, Murchison yes. are both, were both real geologists and, um, you know, they did the work that they did in, in the film. There's no real evidence in reality that they had any kind of romantic relationship. Um, that's just an interpretation that this writer-director has chosen to take, so he, that he doesn't want to be viewed as a biography necessarily. Um, but, yeah, but the people in it are real. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> sorry. The, the, the thing for me was is uh, the order we watched them in really determines sometimes... Uh, the outcome of what movie we tend to focus on. Mm. Um, normally, we focus on the movie that's usually worse, just in general, because it just we can just pull that apart and be just like the other movie is. You know, yeah. there's a there's a tearing, and it's like the, the the good movie is really good, and the bad movie is just really bad. That yeah. we spend so much time focusing on the bad movie. No, these are both pretty good. These are both. There are aspects of both of these movies that are absolutely fantastic. And it was interesting because you said to me, when I mentioned it when we were watching it, or just after we'd finished Ammonite, yeah. that you'd watched them the opposite way around. So we watched Ammonite first and then A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And you'd found some of Ammonite boring because yeah. you'd watched A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And the way we watched it, I expressed how I... Which I'm going to express now. Yeah. Is... Uh, very similar to a previous movie we watched, which was our previous set, which we watched was Never um, Really, Sometimes Always. Yes. Yeah, I knew that's what that's what I would compare it to. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you don't need dialogue to express how the characters yeah. feel, because in my opinion, that leads to bad acting, and in this these two movies. There's a lot of expression and a lot of the story comes mm -hmm. out of just how the actors portray the characters and how the characters respond to yeah. the, the the scene and there are some i think um mary's uh, kate winslet's character mary yeah. and a lot of the sequence scenes she's in because she's a very um 
the, 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 I'm going to read out the note that I wrote um, because it is just so funny. Um, proper English is just lying politely. <laughs> because when they have the scene... Um, so Mary's approached by this guy who wants to make a name for himself. Yeah. He turns up and they're there because his wife has melancholia, which is yeah. a real... Real nineteen eight um eighteen hundreds medical disorder that women have. Yeah, it's it's uh, heavily implied but never stated that she has lost a child. Yeah. Um, because she dresses as if she's in mourning for, yeah. for the whole beginning of the film, and there's a throwaway line which is um she tries to cuddle her husband in bed, and he says now's not the time to make another child or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's very it's kind of like just one throwaway line, but you go. Okay. I want to get into Charlotte a little bit. Later? Um, or now? Just in a, in, a, in a second. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring up that proper English is just lying politely. Yeah. Is Mary doesn't have that, that um, barrier of the way she communicates with yes. men. Where you see a lot of the other female characters in both these movies, the way they speak to men is very different. And I think... I think without Kate Winslet's powerhouse acting, it wouldn't have been as good. Mm. But she is just so blunt and to the point that yeah. she she is just constantly, I'm sick of your shit. Yeah. And, and I, it's fantastic. I think that's how Mary Anning really was in real yeah. life. And that's probably why there is some amount of speculation because she was unmarried. She never had, there's no evidence of her having a relationship with anyone, male or female. Yeah. Um, but she was very... I think that's just what she was like, uh, personality-wise. I think that's probably why there are, you know, speculations as to maybe she wasn't, you know, a straight woman. Yeah. And then you see the counterpoint of that, um, Charlotte, who's mm -hmm. basically a prisoner in her own life. Yes. Because um, it was that scene... Um, we, we, you just mentioned where they're lying in the... Ho well, she's lying in bed in the hotel room. And he's getting into his pajamas, and I just thought, man, the clothing back then is just so. There's several, several mentions, well, several, several points where I took notice of just how annoying the clothing would have been to wear in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she's just like, as any modern healthy relationship would, one person is undressing, the other person is in bed, and the person who's in bed is just. Casually watching the other person get mm. undressed to the point where she realizes she's doing it and then pretends she wasn't, and then her husband gets in bed and all she does is try and cuddle him, yeah. which from her point of view, from her mental health, would probably be good, and he just takes it as a sexual advance and yeah. is like, stay away from me because he, like, in his mind, I don't know if it was an 1800s men or just his character in general, because, you know, I'm not a man from the 1800s. Yeah. Um, You're not? No. Um, the, yeah, like, people can be, and I think that's why she was so, like, there's other reasons but I think that why she embraced the relationship with Mary so quickly is because she was getting something that she wasn't getting from her husband, which is intimacy without, like, it doesn't have to be sexual. It just can be right. just sharing a moment yeah. and sharing a touch with somebody Yeah. where you're living in the society where it's prim and proper. Because the most, the most intimate moments in that movie are um when charlotte is sick and mary just wipes the sweat off her brow yeah like there's something and then there is i can't remember there's another bit i know i took a note of it but there's like it's just very very subtle totally non-sexual non-romantic things um oh yeah she applies a salve to yeah. her because she's sick and she's trying to help her and it's like those are the moments that are the most intimate in that whole film um, you know, but no, but yeah, genuinely, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like they, they are very, you know, it's, it's, and it's obviously affection that she's not getting from her husband because yeah. her husband is very much like, this is our job is to have children, I guess, or whatever, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, and he, you know, the way he treats Charlotte is just really not good in my opinion. But I mean, that's how it was at the time, I guess. 
um, that like he speaks for her. Like for the whole, anytime she's around him in front of other people, she doesn't speak. Yeah. He speaks for her, and then you get that especially in the. Um, I mean, at the, be- the your first introduction to them, she doesn't say a word for the whole scene. He's talking to Mary, and she's just standing there, and he's like, "This is my wife," and then she goes, she opens her mouth, and he cuts her off, and yeah. something. But the it's really highlighted in the scene where they go for lunch together. And he orders himself this big, like, oh, lavish yeah, yeah. meal. And he wants cream and he wants this. And he wants all this stuff. And he wants their wine from this year. And, you know, um, and then the waiter kind of looks at Charlotte and he says, my wife will have... The, the white fish with the, no sauce. Yeah, the white fish baked no sauce. Yeah. She doesn't even get to open her mouth. She doesn't get to look at him and She doesn't get to say anything to him. Um, and he's having this massive meal that's, you know, it's very luxurious and he orders for her and it's like she gets the most simple thing on the menu. The interesting part about that scene where they go into the restaurant was when they go into the crowded area and people are talking and there's music playing and she's like, oh, can we stay here? And it's like, no, for your health, we have to go somewhere quiet. It's like, yeah, clearly that's not what she needs. Like melancholia yes. is not a real thing. Yeah. And then they contrast that later on because um, the, the doctor doesn't want to invite Charlotte to the party. Yeah. And uh, Mary is like, no, she enjoys music more than I do. And she wants to, she needs to go out. And he's like, I recommend against it. And she's like, well, as her friend, I recommend it for As her. a person who actually helped her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, basically. Um, and I think that, again, because that's before they have any sexual scenes, I believe. And that's, I think that endears her more to Mary as well, that Mary is actually paying attention to her and what she needs and want and what's, you know, because the first sign of her getting better is her playing the piano. Yeah. So music is obviously quite important in, to her life and her mental health. And Mary's the only person who has actually noticed it. Yeah. I think we're neglecting something quite important. The other movie? The other movie, yeah. <laughs> um, we've got lots of time. No, they're both, they're both fantastic movies. I, yeah, like you said before, I, first time I watched these movies, I think I did watch them back to back. Um, and I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire first, and it is a fantastic movie. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic movie. Uh, it's written and directed by Celine Siama, who also did Petite Maman. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Madman, because they sent us it on DVD. Yes, this is an a unofficially sponsored episode <laughs> by Madman New Zealand. Thank yeah. you very much for giving um, us free stuff. Yeah, so Matt, because like the, it was the same the same competition. We won a DVD of Portrait of Lady on Fire and a poster. We have a poster of Portrait of Lady on Fire, which we can stick up now that you've seen it. Um, and uh, take us to Petite Mama, and that's why we ended up doing an episode on that. But um, yeah, it's the first time I watched it, I watched Portrait of Lady on Fire first, um, and it was so fantastic that it overshadowed Ammonite. So I'm glad that when we, we watched them, we watched them the other way around, because I actually feel like I appreciated Ammonite more, having not just watched Fear. Portrait of Lady on Fire first. So I'd recommend if anyone's going to like watch these two back-to-back, start with Ammonite. They're both really good, though. Or just don't watch movies in a row. It's actually bad for you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we do it every week for this podcast. Well, not every week. Not every week. Yeah. Um, and we don't always do them back to back. No. We have been recently, though. I think it's yeah. just, like, I think it just, not this time, but I think it helps bring a lot of energy and everything's really fresh in your mind and you haven't sort of. Yeah, that's you know, fair enough. Played connect the dots. You sort of go <gasps> halfway through the podcast and go, I remember, because it was like it was like. Um, sorry, I'm I'm now not doing what I said I was gonna do. It's okay. Um, the figurines that took me like halfway through the movie to right. figure out what why the mother was so obsessed with cleaning them and dusting them and drying them and then putting them back yeah. on the shelf. They they do a similar thing in the favorite, which funnily enough is another. Um, the queer film is about it's it's about Queen Anne, and two two women who were courting her unofficially, but um, she never never had a living child. She yeah. so she had I think she also had figurines, but it's the same in Ammonite that it's um you know you the mother the first time we see them is just the mother polishing these figurines and you don't know what they're for or what they are, and then later on um. Because obviously Mary has picked up on what's going on with Charlotte. Um, she mentions that her mother had ten children, yeah. and uh, eight of them have passed away, and that each one of them, when it went, took something of her with them. Is what she says, I think. Um, and then later on, you see the mother, or you see, I think, um, 
Charlotte goes to wash them or something, and the mother's just like, no, my babies. Yeah. Um, and it's you realize that there's eight of the figurines. Yeah, because it was only until that point, because they're set up on a shelf, I think, above their kitchen area. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you can't really tell how many there are, because it's, it's, they're not quite in focus, but they're not... They're, they're in focus, but they're not quite in the frame where you notice, like, you just notice the hand movement, for me anyway, um, rather than... It wasn't until they were lined up on the table and there was four and four, and my brain is much easier than reading how yeah, many yeah. there are when they're you know two lines. Yeah, and they do it intentionally. I think that you see them first, not knowing the, the yeah significance. Yeah, um, but yes, back to portrait of Lady on fire because I think you know we've read. Well, there's actually similar. I I know this is we're going totally off book at the moment, but similar to that because that, that is a book. That's a because <laughs> that's a very female experience and I think especially for that time um having you know being pregnant and losing the pregnancy or having a child that doesn't make it to adulthood yeah um I think especially that time is is very much a common female experience and what they do in Portrait of Lady on Fire to show a different but similar um shared female experience around that time is uh, they have the maid uh has become pregnant and they help her get an abortion um, so they do both, both films touch on kind of taboo subjects of, you know, female reproductive health and, um, how they weren't talked about. And yeah. then, and it's interesting because, you know, you get that, you kind of get that in Ammonite that the husband doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, obviously the, you know, men are not speaking to her about it, but Mary shares her mother's experience and, um, you know, she starts to go like, okay other people have been through this um and then you get that in portrait of lady on fire because um the the maid has become pregnant and um they try to get her to do lots of like strenuous activity to try and lose the baby and they get her to drink some kind of a stew made with a particular kind of weed and things like that um which doesn't work so then they later have to bring her to a herbalist and get that done but um Marianne, who is the uh, the painter, um, reveals in that first moment, or you know, in that fir- when they're when they're trying to get her to um, when they're trying to go through their own ways of doing it, she reveals that she previously has had an abortion. Yeah. Um. So again, it's this idea of, you know, the women coming together and talking about their shared experiences with this with this thing that isn't talked about in society, but was obviously happening because you know they go and meet these other women and the the herbalist knows that yeah. she's still pregnant she's like you need to come in two days time we'll do this um and it's treated like a totally normal thing yeah because it's obviously going on all the time but then at the same time they decide to recreate it in a painting because they're marking that it was significant for her yeah um but i do yeah i just think it's interesting that both films touch on subjects that would be kind of taboo it's interesting because though one of the things that i took away from both these films um they both did it but they did it in different ways um there's a lot of focus on mary's hands and or i was just being hyper aware of what her hands were doing Okay. And it was also interesting because from Portrait of Lady on Fire, when you're seeing the painting, you're seeing the painting not... Um, it was very like when you see someone who clearly can't play guitar playing guitar where the camera zooms straight into their hands. But it was interesting watching the way she was painting because I don't know anything about oil painting. Well, I can tell you that every time you see a hand painting in that movie, it's not the actress, it's the artist. Yeah. They have an actual painter who painted all those paintings, and she's the one whose hand you see. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> is there was a lot of focus on the hands, and it was just very different to what I would think a professional oil painter right. would do. Because I, th- you know, when I, you know, go through memory of other seeing other painting, there's and, and media obviously not mm-hmm. in real life. Um, the only thing I've ever seen is life drawing, and that was all done with pencil or maybe graphite or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of like a 
for that artist anyway, there was kind of like a a feverishness to it, like mm. an un, like a controlled uncertainty. Does that make any sense to you? Right. Yeah. Cause because she... the brush strokes seem to be random, but and the hand them. movements seem to be very random. Like she would sort of go over repetitively over the same area without touching the canvas, and it was just. That's um I I from doing um animation in college that was how we learned to draw circles was that you should like do it over and over above the thing before you because you get your hand into the practice of doing it and then you lay down the line and it'll it makes it more perfectly so round yeah. yeah whereas if you if you just if you just got a piece of paper and got a pencil and just tried to draw a circle so you're gonna end up with like something weird yeah, yeah yeah so I'd say it's something similar to that that she's like practicing like is this how it's gonna look before she lays it down on the canvas. Um, will be my, my best guess at what she's doing there. She's kind of, you know, measuring and getting it in her head, like, yes, this is what I want to do. Yeah, there was just the the counterflip to that was the moment that stuck out to me in Armanite was where Mary's character walks. They're both on the... Mary and Charlotte. Charlotte's, I think it's the first day out with Mary. Right, okay. And she just, like, is, like, two rocks over... And yeah. just, it's like literally the scene opens with her squatting down and urinating. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then her response was just to wipe her hands on her apron just real casually and then breaks food in half and tries to hand it to her. And it's <laughs> like, oh, whatever, you're not eating. And then walks off like 10 meters and sits on another rock and eats it. It's just yeah. like, did you intentionally pee next to her and then just be like, do you want some food? No, all right, I'm going all the way over there. <laughs> but yeah, there's just lots of. I guess, you know, it was just a different time, but it was just, yeah, it was just like, wow, it's so unhygienic. Mm. I think she just doesn't care as well. Yeah, but it's just... Yeah. I think that's kind of to show the contrast between her and Charlotte in a way, that yeah. Charlotte has been brought up as this proper lady, and she's, you know, this guy's wife, and she's going to do all this, whatever, and Mary, the you know, she doesn't follow the conventions. Yeah. She's just out there, she, you know... In slightly more practical, I mean, she's still wearing dresses, but she's in more slightly more practical clothes. I think that was the law, though. Right, but she wears like practical boots, and she gives Mary or she gives Charlotte practical boots to wear on the beach, and she's just like climbing up and getting herself muddy, and you know she doesn't give a shit. Um, Which is quite interesting when you see Charlotte do it for the first time, and she has to take her wedding ring off. And Mary sort of like stands up and looks at her like, you're wasting your time, girl. And then she's just like digging into the mud and then the the moment where they break off a random piece of wood and then strap the giant rock to it and then yeah. carry it off together. It was like quite, you know, friggin' teamwork moment, but it was just quite seeing that change from someone who was sitting there being prim and proper to being yeah. like, oh, now I'm going to dig in the mud now. Yeah, yeah. You freed me from my gilded cage. I'm going to dig in the mud. Yeah, and it's interesting because, in, you know, um, we've talked about uh, Marianne not getting recognised for scientific discoveries and stuff, but uh, Charlotte Murchison, in her own right, did become a geologist after yeah. after those trips with Marianne. So those those interactions happened. Um, there's just no evidence that there was, like, a romantic relationship yeah. or a sexual relationship. But um, she did learn from... Mary Anning, and she did then go on to become a geologist and make their own discoveries and things. Um, so, it, you know, that really happened, that she did make that change. Um, and so it's just really, I, I really like how they showed it in the film, you know, the transition. I think Saoirse Ronan is, is, was pretty good at, you know, depicting that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because both of the relationships in both the movies um, have a real time frame on them. Yeah. And it's sort of preordained there's a time frame. Mm. Um, it's not like a, you know, a, a summer fling when they're both on holiday. It's more along the lines of like, you know, here's, here's a setup. You know, you're here. I'm employing you to paint my daughter before she goes and gets married. I'm here to let my wife recuperate while I gallivant around the world learning shit about shiny rocks. Yep. And because she's got melancholy oh god um she was depressed yeah essentially and yeah the, the you know these two women in both cases having a relationship together knowing there's a time frame mm. but they won't be able to see each other ever again yeah and i think it's kind of beautiful and sad and i think the 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 set you know the the 
that sort of ideal is, is what makes the relationships more interesting. Because mm. there, there is no happy ending for them. Yeah, and it's interesting because in both now, um, like in both films, I'm skipping to the end now. We can go back and start from the beginning in a while. It doesn't matter. Um, but at the towards the endings of both films, you get one person who wants to hold on to it, one person who wants to move on in yeah. both films. Yeah. So in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you get Marianne um, essentially telling Heloise that she would rather that she reject the marriage, re- reject everything, and stay in the relationship with her. Yeah. And Heloise being like, you don't understand my situation and the fact that I do not have a choice in this. I have to marry this person. Yeah. Um, and in... Uh, Ammonite, you get um, Charlotte invites Mary to... Yeah, that to, whole to, sequence is a bit screwy. Yeah, it's really weird. So she invites Mary for a visit, but when Mary gets there, it turns out Charlotte has set up a whole bedroom next to her bedroom for Mary to move into. Um, and Mary's like, you know, I wish you'd told me this because I wouldn't have... Co-, you know, I could have yeah. saved the boat fare. I wouldn't have come here. And, you know, and Charlotte just doesn't get it, but Mary's like, you know, what about my work? And she's like, oh... I hate to think of you out there on your own, you know, going, digging out those rocks and things. She's like, you just don't get me because yeah. that is me. It's, it's Charlotte goes from someone stuck in a gilded cage to trying to stick Mary in a gilded exactly. cage. And she's like, no, I'm actually free out there. Like, yeah. no one can tell me what to do. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting, like, obviously the intentions from Charlotte's point of view were good, but, you know, she's kind of just missed the... Yeah. Yeah, in both cases, the intentions are good, but they are not quite understanding the situation and the yeah. life of the other person. Um, and that, you know, becomes an issue. Um, so let's start from the beginning. <laughs> we've, we've, we've talked a little you know, we've, we've given a, a general overview of these films. I just want to talk about the premise of them, because we haven't really gone into how they get to be set up. So, like, the beginning of Portrait of Lady of Fire is... Um, Marianne is arriving by boat and she's just kind of ditched on the beach and told to, you know, climb up and whatever. And After she jumped out of the boat. That was to save the canvas. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Um, and then you get this premise that um, she's been hired to uh, paint a portrait of this woman um, to send to a suitor that they want to match her with to be married. Um, but she... Uh, basically builds a kind of an amicable relationship with the maid, even though she's... So, so it's, it, Marianne is interesting because, like Mary, um, she doesn't follow the conventions. So in her status, she shouldn't be making friends with the maid, but she also shouldn't be talking so um, casually with the woman of the house. You know, she should be look, you know, looking up to her, but looking down on the maid, but she, yeah. she is quite casual to the same extent with both of them. Um... And she uses that, that you know, uh, friendship that she builds with the maid to be like, look, you need to tell me what's happened because it, she finds out that um, the sister or the, the girl that she's going to paint has just been taken from a convent, essentially. She's been living in a convent and she's been removed from that to set up this marriage. And the reason that that's happened is because her sister was supposed to be the one getting married and then her sister died. Um... And when she talks to the maid, she's like, you need to tell me what happened to your mistress. And she says, well, we were walking together uh, by the cliffs. And then when I turned around, she was gone and she was at the bottom of the cliff. And she's, you know, and she basically says, I think she, I don't think she fell. I think she um, threw herself over it. Um, and when she asks why, she says she didn't cry out. So the idea is that, you know, you have this one, and it's like you were saying about the gilded cage in Ammonite. You have this person that we never get to meet in the film who, or whose presence is hanging over the whole film to some extent, who, you know, has been brought up and raised to, to marry this person and take her family to this other city because they're going to Milan in, in uh, Italy. Um, and she so much didn't fit into this cage that she potentially and most likely took her own life. Um, and now we're seeing her sister pulled from the life that she had, that she liked, that you know, that she was happy and content with, and put into her sister's shoes knowing that knowing what happened to her sister. 
Um, so it makes it makes for a very interesting premise for the beginning of the the film. And then in Ammonite, it's like you, we've already kind of discussed this a bit, but it's essentially Mary is living and doing this work by the sea, and this guy shows up wanting to learn from her, and he's an arrogant, pompous shithead. Um, uh, but he has his wife with him, and then his, him and his wife are supposed to go to continental Europe and go around the continent learning um, about, you know, geology. Um, but as he decides his wife is too sick, and he asks Mary to let her go on walks with her as a companion so that so he knows that someone is looking after her and she's getting the sea air and things like that. And that's how they end up um, connected. You just haven't said anything in a while. Yeah, it's because <laughs> I, I literally was just going to let you go because the, the, <laughs> the point being is that I, regardless of the premises of the movies, um, yeah. I think just... What I took away from both of them is just how well they're made. Yeah, and absolutely. And the shots of a shot, there's nothing There's nothing in there that's frivolous. Everything had a point and had a... Like, whoever edited this down did a really good job. Mm. Um, I could look that up, but I'm not going to. Um, yeah, it's... For me, it's all the things that aren't said on screen. Yeah. That show in, and it's show, don't tell. Yeah. And I think that's missing quite a lot from. It's missing a lot from modern. Everything modern seems well, to be. Well, these are very, modern. These are from. Yeah, but twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. <laughs> sorry, um, indie then. I mean, I think I thought Portrait of a Lady on Fire is indie. No, I'm so. saying no. You're missing what I'm saying. <laughs> The problem with big budget is everything oh, is overproduced right. yes, and, yes. and crappy because they, they tell, they don't show, there's nothing, there's, you know, you watch any yeah, movie yeah. made by Michael Bay and it's all like, everything has to be explained constantly because the viewer is a dumbass. Yeah. Versus this where it was just the, um, one of my favourite scenes is um, um, in A Portrait of a Lady on Fire and she's not allowed to tell her that she's there to paint the painting of right. her. yes. So they're just subtly, she's just subtly trying to catch looks of her to try and understand what she looks like. Mm-hmm. And her reaction to knowing, you know, she's got that feeling in the back of her neck where she knows someone's looking at her and then they just, like, quickly see each other. And it's the same when you, like, see it's somebody in the street or a stranger or yeah. something and you're like, what's that person doing? And then they look at you and you look at them and you're like, ah, and then you look yeah. away. and that plays a part later on because um, when she finds out that she's a painter, um, she gets upset and she gets, you know, she's yeah, upset that the she... Whole, their entire friendship is, well, friendship, their paid friendship is on false pretenses. Yeah, but it's not only that, it's that she, because one of the things she says to her is, so that's why you were looking at me. Yeah. Because obviously in her mind, she has seen this woman sneaking glances at her and that has been part of what has um, developed this romantic interest in her is she thinks that it's returned. I mean, it turns out it is returned. But it's not until she shows her the painting and she she's like, you didn't capture me at all. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're supposed to be just, you know, and then she goes, well, fine, I'll destroy it and paint a new one. But yeah. you have to, you know, it's like the only way you're going to do with it is like, she sends a letter and says, no, she's going to actually pose for it. Like, we've all, everything's all smoothed over, and then they sort of get this weird, I wouldn't say extension, but that's where they can develop these feelings. Yeah, because they get a, so essentially, um, the painting is finished, and she's supposed to bring, bring the painting, the mother's supposed to bring the painting to Milan with her and give it to the guy. Um, but then she destroys the painting, and the mother gets real irate yeah. about it. Um, and then Heloise says, I'll pose for her. Yeah. So then she's like, okay, fine. I'm going to Milan for five days. I'll be back in five days. It will be complete by then. Um, and so, so they have five days where it's just the two of them and the maid in the house. And they're, you know, she's intentionally posing and they no longer have this lie over the relationship. And it's, you know, they can be more open with each other. And that leads to romance and stuff. Way to explain exactly what I just said. <laughs> No, but I'm saying, like, that's that's how that happens. Yeah, that's literally what I just <laughs> said. I don't think you did that. Um, yeah, I think importantly about both films is that they're both 
written and directed by uh, queer writer-directors. Um, so Ammonite is written and directed by a gay man and um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is written and directed by a lesbian. Um, and I know at least one of the actors is queer because um, uh, the actress who plays Eloise is the ex-girlfriend of the director. Yeah. Um, so they're so you know there's people involved, especially in the writing and the directing of it, who know you know what it's like to be in a queer relationship and to you in know the eighteen hundreds. No, well they don't quite know what. It, well, I mean they'll know from history, but they don't you know. But they know they have an idea of what it's like to be in a relationship that peop other people might look down on or not view as a, as equal to a heterosexual relationship, which is I mean obviously. Things are a lot better now than they would have. Mm. <laughs> some places. In some places. Some places, you know, there's uh, some subjects in one of these movies that would really upset some uh, friggin' rednecks. Um, um, but not even, not even only that. I mean, there's places at the moment where it's um, not only can you get the death penalty for being gay, but also it's legal for other people to murder you if they think you're gay. Yeah. Um, which is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the world still has a long way to go. Um, but, you know, it's... I don't know, I was going to say it's probably improved, but it probably hasn't improved from then, because... No, because some places know. are literally getting worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think definitely a lot of, you know, there's a, it's... In a lot of places, it's a lot more acceptable to be outspoken about it. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Look, I just, I, you know, it's, I think the, the 24 hour news cycle really doesn't help things anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, the, um, the availability of news is really, really affecting how heavy hitting things are. But like, I don't know, just what's going on in the States at the moment is just mm. like really shit. Yeah. And... We I, could we could literally publish this episode at any time. And yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that you know when it comes to you know the uh, same sex relationships and the, the mention of abortion, as you said yeah. earlier, which we'd also already covered in a previous episode, but um, when the fuck did old white men be the best people to pick what happens to women? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, I you, mean, that's you, always been the way. Yeah, but, but it you, shouldn't be. Yeah, you, you look at these politicians who are the ones making decisions, and you know for a fact that they've never ever satisfied anybody <laughs> physically, and they're the ones making but decisions on who who's that's allowed irrelevant. To, who's allowed to love each other, who's right. allowed to get married, who's allowed to make mistakes, and or, you know. And some of the shit that I've been reading, like, I know Twitter's a bad place to read any information, mm. but some of the stuff that I've just seen posted on Twitter, it's just like, have you read a, a book? Mm. Like, do you, like, talking about, um, the hell was it? Uh, women can't get pregnant unwillingly? Uh, like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't understand where that shit comes from. It comes from the same, like, I said this to uh. a workmate the other day. Um, I like dumb conspiracies that don't hurt people. Yeah. I like the fact out there that are people that don't understand simple science and think the planet is flat mm -hmm. or the moon's not real. What I don't like is people who think vaccines are the way the government's going to put tracking chips in you. Like, motherfucker, do you have an iPhone? Mm -hmm. I, App, Google knows where you are. Mm -hmm. Apple knows where you are. Yes. Every time you post on Twitter, guess what? They know where you are. You take a photo on a phone. Like, this is a this is a crazy thing. I don't like taking photos. I don't like posting photos that I haven't personally edited um, from my Apple phone because without stripping the metadata off them, yeah. it has a GPS location of where I took the photo. Mm -hmm. And you worried about the government putting chips in you, yet you clearly have an Instagram account and you'll post stuff from your iPhone whatever 11 and you're worried about the government knowing, like, that's fine. Encouraging people not to get vaccines on bullshit science? Mm -hmm. Bad for yeah. everybody else. It's about social responsibility. Mm -hmm. 
And when you're talking about taking women's rights to have an abortion away from them, and then they and like I think it was Florida, where you have to go to court and the court has to rule that you're too immature to have an abortion, but you're mature enough to have a child? Like, what? Like, are they worried about their tax revenue in 15 years' time being too low? Like, I know New Zealand can't afford my generation of people to retire, and that's why they introduced KiwiSaver. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's people out there, like people we know, who are both working and also receiving, um, I can't remember what it's called, pension, the pension. Right, yeah. So that's out of mine and yours and whoever else is in New Zealand, or who's a New Zealand tax resident paying taxes. You know, that goes to small tiny percentage like less than 15 percent of one tax period of one year is going to the pension fund and it's bugger all money it's the same as being unemployed or being on this sickness benefit or you know whatever but it's just like that's fine you know you can believe these things as long as it doesn't affect everybody else yeah and that's the problem and And that's that's the thing is that it's people who believe ridiculous things or you know have no concept of reality are the ones making the laws, and that's not acceptable. Well, they just don't understand. Yeah. It was like, the the one for me is like, I don't like this person in particular, but when a certain, certain person was in front of the Supreme Court explaining how his product, which most people have, including myself, um, explaining how his product made money, mm-hmm. and he had to explain to the very white panel of very old white men mm-hmm. of how his platform made money yeah. and his response is well if you're not selling our data how do you make money and it's like well I sell ads yeah you're forced to constantly watch ads that's how I make millions of dollars yeah and they're like oh I thought it was because you're stealing our data it's like no you gave it to us voluntarily I don't have to steal anything yeah in uh, what movie is it? The the uh, the movie. Um, I was going to say Friends with Benefits, but that's not the movie. Um, the movie about the platform you're talking about. Yes. The social network. Social network. The guy invented it so he could steal women's information. Mm. I'm not mentioning his name because he doesn't deserve it. Well, everyone it. knows who he is now. Yes. <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg is stealing your data. Yeah. <laughs> But it's just like, you know, and it's, it's just, it's such a, like I said to you the other day, and I, I, actually I, I've said this multiple times recently, mm-hmm. when the generation, and this is coming from someone who's in their mid-30s, when the generation who's currently in control are all dead, and we have the generation who lives through a life-changing, world-changing apocalypse every friggin' five years, Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a hell of a lot better off. You know, I don't think there's going to be people in my generation and hopefully in the generation um, after mine who will be accepting of, you know, massive multinational corporations destroying the planet for their own profit. And it's like, well... The problem is that there are, though. Especially in... America, you see, are quite outspoken. There are people just, in our I'm, generation who would quite happily stick with all these shitty laws. There, there's a joke that I heard um, recently from a podcast I listen to while I'm working. Um, and they were talking about in Florida, there's no fluoride in the water. Right. So the joke was, is that what people are like normally? Mm-hmm. And because and there's, you know, the conspiracy that putting fluoride in the water is yeah. about mind control. Uh, yeah, um, it's got nothing to do with teeth, um, and it's like is Florida just because they have no Florida in the world? Is that one people are normally that's, like that's baseline? That's humans. baseline humans. It's just Florida man, and it's not without the mind control drugs that the government spends billions of dollars, you know, putting into the water supply that um, actually actually calm people down, or otherwise they'll be riding alligators into Walmart on on rascals and stabbing each other. But the reality is the only reason that people mention Florida all the time is because their um, crime database is free to look up. So you can just look up crimes that have been committed in Florida and because you get an area of a country and filled with people, or, you know, elderly people in low decile and poor education and it's hot 
and if it's not hot, it's wet, and then because it's wet, it oh, becomes hot. Oh, it's hot, hot and wet at the yeah, same time. Yeah, yeah. Quite often. Yeah. You know, just it's people like 100 go, degrees and also raining and thunderstorms. It's, it's interesting because we're on the subject of America and you look at, um, what did I say? That, uh, I, I can't remember. I, I mentioned it to somebody um, ages back and uh, it was a comedian saying it, but I, I believe it's, it's a very true statement. People have to have a little bit of suck in their life mm-hmm. or they would just become assholes. Yeah. And it's like, you look at California, an area where people don't, it's no bad weather. There's no bad weather in California. It's always bright and sunny and warm. Forest fires and things. That's not weather related. Drought is weather related. Yeah, but they just steal other states' water. Oh my god. And they're just assholes to each other. And they're assholes to the... You're alienating I'm, all our listeners in California I'm and in Florida. I'm generalizing here. Anyway. But, but, you know, and then you take people that, like, are in other... Oh, we'll, say, we'll say it from New Zealand standards. You go out to the country, mm-hmm. or what we did recently when we were out in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. and you say hi to people, and people say hi back to you. Yeah. Well, it's the same in Ireland. Yeah. You know, you walk around Dublin and everyone ignores everyone and hopes that no one looks at them. Yeah. And then you walk around, you know, middle of the countryside and everyone's your friend and they wave at you and they yeah. say hi and, you know, cars drive by and wave at you. Yeah. It's because it's just that difference in lifestyle brings <laughs> a difference in attitude. And it's people who don't have to want for anything, don't understand the plights of people that have to want for things. And then they make decisions over those people and it pisses me off because it's not their right. Right. So to tie this back into the movies, this is the man. This is the patriarchy yeah, in these yeah, films. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, there basically are no men. There's men at the beginning in the boat. No, because they're like, it's, it's, for me, they were like a, a, it's a very looming threat. Yes, yes. So the men, the the men and the patriarchy are like a, you know, it's just this this ominous yeah you know, thing that's hanging over their heads yeah. the whole time. Um, but the only men you see on screen are at the beginning, bringing uh, Marianne there by boat, and then there's a guy arrives with um, Eloise's mother when she comes back from Milan, and he's taking the portrait. And then at the end of the film, there's you know crowds of people and stuff. Yeah. But um very much there's no men for most of the movie and it's them getting to be free and by themselves without the threat of men around them um and even the fact you know there's a whole there's like multiple sequences multiple scenes revolving around this um unwanted pregnancy and the abortion yeah and the father is never mentioned yeah there's no mention of a man at any point um but the whole time there's this looming knowledge that uh, Heloise is promised to this man if he likes her portrait, she will go and marry him. Which is, I guess, you know, it's the equivalent of sending people, each other's asking each other for their Snapchats. <laughs> or following yeah, somebody on Instagram, I guess. Um, but like her mother talks about it because her mother says. Oh, her mother's a chef. She's literally selling her daughter off because she needs to go live with them because. Yeah, she wants to go to Milan. But she yeah. says, she, what she says to um, Marianne is she's just like, I understand her anger. I know that anger. And she says, when I first arrived in this house, my portrait was already up on the wall. Yeah. I arrived in and I was looking at myself. Yeah. I was taken away from the city I love to this, like, they're in a house on the coast with nowhere. Like, they're yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Totally isolated. And she's from this city that's booming with life and with music and art. Um, and that's what she knows and loves. But she's had to spend her whole life in this place that she hates. Yeah. Um, and she understands that she's uprooting her daughter and putting her daughter in a situation she doesn't want to be in. But she also is like, you know, there is life there there's music there there's you know she she will learn to be happy there um but also this is what they have to do as a wealthy family you know it is what is expected of them that's what they you know know, that's what Heloise even says to Marianne it's like you know I don't have a choice in this this is what needs to happen for my family essentially um yeah, so the patriarchy is very much a presence without there being any men in the yeah. film, which is which is 
very interesting because we do get to see, you know, what they are like without the presence of men. But also, we know that that is, you know, what always on their mind. Yeah. Um, and in Ammonite, it's quite similar because, you know, their first interactions are with her husband around and they don't interact, essentially, because no, her husband's I, around. I think it's a greater um, threat than that because it's literally talking about the fact that, from Mary's point of view, regardless of what she achieves, it'll be, t- you know, taken away from her. Yeah, yeah. And you get that in Portrait of a Lady on Fire as well because... Uh, you know, uh, Marianne. Oh, talks, the, the yeah, the she, paintings at the end of it. Yeah, so she talks about at one point she talks about how she's not allowed. She doesn't paint men because yeah. she's not allowed to because she's a woman and yeah. there are rules. Um, and she's you know she's planning to take over her father's business as a painter because her father is a painter. And at the end of the film, um, we see her. She's painted because they they made a lot of parallels to themselves and uh, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. Um, and this idea that, you know, if you turn around, she'll be gone. Um, so she has painted this painting of Orpheus and Eurydice saying goodbye to each other, saying a farewell as she's pulled back into the other world. Yeah. And, uh, she's standing there and a man comes up and is like, oh, are you... Your you... father's work's really good. And she's like, actually, it's not my... It's my it's mine. Yeah. It's mine and I put his name on it. Fuck you. Yeah, she's like, I had to put his name on it to get it in the gallery. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, oh, Okay. But, um, but yeah, but for her to succeed in the art world, she has to do it under her father's name. She yeah. can't let people know that it's her that's painted it because it's not allowed for her to do yeah. that. Um, and you get that in Ammonite because you get, you know, she's discovering all these things and sending them off to the museum. And, the, you know, she's got, um, you know, artifacts in the British Museum and they've just taken her name off it. Like, you see that. It's the very opening scene. Yeah. And I love that it's the opening scene. Because the opening scene is a woman on the floor washing the ground of, yeah. of the museum and the men all push past her and put this down and they see a woman's name on the tag, take it off and just say, like, yeah. you know, Ichthyosaurus, British Museum or whatever. Um, and then you see that paralleled when she visits um, Charlotte's house because her husband has put up all the th- his artifacts that he's found around Europe uh, with his name on them, yeah. including the one that she found. Yeah. Um, he's put his name on it, and Charlotte has stuck her stuck Mary's name over it. Yeah. And it's the first time, obviously, Mary's actually been credited with her own work. Um, so I think nowadays, everything that she had done, or most things she had done, is credited under, under her own name. Yeah, it's just shitty that it took, you know... But, you know, that's, that's, that was the time. Yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's, there's definitely, um, patriarchy looming in both of these films. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you very much get a sense, even though that uh, for a lot of both films, there is no interaction with men. You get a very strong sense in both films that, um, so much of these women's lives is impacted by the fact that they have to follow the rules of men. Yeah. Before moving into some trivia or some budgets mm-hmm. and some uh, box office, yeah. what is the second incident with the egg? Oh, I don't know. So <laughs> that was one of the IMDb trivia was about... Because um... her mum, she takes eggs from their chickens and the mum cooks them and then she cracks her open and it's like a half-developed like fetus that's got like feathers and stuff. And the trivia is like, this is the, the, there are two occasions with eggs in it. No, no, it's not. It's that, it's the second time a character played by Gemma Jones has had an egg-related misfortune. Oh, right. So she obviously, oh, it looks like it's in Bridget Jones's diary. She has something to do with an egg in that. So, just that, it's, I don't know what, it's just so weird to me that that was a piece of trivia, an IMDb trivia, was that Gemma Jones, this is the second time Gemma Jones's character, or, you know, a character played by Gemma Jones um, has a egg-related misfortune. Um, Excellent. Yeah, so she has her, her egg egg misfortunes. Um, so you want to go on to... What do you want to do, budgets and box offices? No, trivia first, please. <laughs> trivia first, please. Um, so, yeah, so Mary Anning's family, obviously not direct descendants, but, like, um, distant relations, were delighted that a film was being made about her, but they were very confused about the fact that it was 
a lesbian. <laughs> um, it seems to have been quite divisive. Some of them were like, uh, there's no evidence to support this, why would you do this? And others were like, well, as long as it's in, you know, in line with the spirit of Mary, that's fine. You know? Um, so the director and the writer said, you know, well, very little is known about her life, so there's no proof of a heterosexual relationship either, so um, why not yeah. follow this, this line, you know? Um, the other thing, I only actually took down two notes from Portrait Relay, or sorry, from Ammonite. The other thing was that um, the sex scene that we see in Ammonite uh, was entirely choreographed by Kate Winslet um, because Francis Lee, the director, didn't feel comfortable you know, telling them how, I suppose especially as a gay man, um, how a lesbian sex scene should go. Um, so, so Kate Winslet choreographed it and she also um, asked for only women in the room because I think it might be, it might be Saoirse Ronan's first sex scene on screen or else it's, she hasn't done very many, I don't know. Um, so they, she just wanted to make sure that Saoirse Ronan felt very safe and comfortable. Um, so they, you know, and they marked out beats in the scene so that they would have it, you know, very narrative driven and things like that. Um, so she said that it's the proudest she's ever felt doing a love scene and by far the least self-conscious. That's Kate Winslet. There's also a, a moment in it where she's, um, fully, fully naked. You see, like, all of Kate Winslet at one point in that film. Um, and she said that she really wanted that to be in the film because that is something that is generally missing from, um, middle-aged women in in love scenes in films that they tend to try and cover up be like oh she you know she's middle-aged no one wants to see that and she was like no you know this is a part of what the relationship would be so why you know and there's no no shame in showing my body so why not do it um so i yeah i quite respect her for that but i, I like that they that the director kind of went hey you know <laughs> someone, i don't understand the mechanics of the situation yeah you can someone take over the uh this particular scene. Um, so in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what did I have for this one? Um, yeah, apparently I didn't even, you know what, I took this down before we watched it and then I still didn't even notice it because I'm so focused on subtitles. So obviously we watch this in French with subtitles. Um, but one of the things about the French language is that there are formal and informal versions of the word you. Like, there's vous and tu. And apparently for the whole movie, uh, Eloise and Marianne use vous, the formal version. And then it's just in the um, the very last sequence when um, Eloise tells her to turn around. And she turns around and sees her in her wedding dress. And it's that, you know, um, parallel again to Orpheus and Eurydice. That's the only time she uses the informal you. Oh. Is to get her to, to turn around at the end. Um... The painter who painted on it, so she did all the sketches and all the paintings of the film. Every time you see the hand painting, it's her. Um, but she painted for 16 hours every day during the course of filming. Christ. That's a lot of painting. I don't even think I'm awake for 16 hours a day. Yeah. Um, the, the chanting, so one of the things, um, I don't think oh, I yeah, the, took it down. Yeah, the music and the... And There's no score in the whole of um, Portrait of Lady on Fire. Yeah. There's no background music at any point. They wanted the um, the rhythm to come from other things in the scene, from what's happening, from the movement, from the you know sounds of the sea and things like that. Um, so there's you know the choreography comes from the sequence shots and stuff. There's no score, um, but the so some of the only so the music is all diegetic if there is music. There's a bit where she plays a harpsichord and there's a bit at the end with an orchestra playing the same yeah. music, um, Vivaldi. Um, but there's also the women around the bonfire chanting in Latin. Yeah. And what they're chanting is uh, figere non possum, which means I cannot escape. And that's what they're chanting over and over again. And then that's what's played in the end credits of the film. Yeah. Um, so I think very, very fitting for, you know, the situation that the film is about, that this is, you know, they are bound to these lives, especially um, Heloise is very much bound to the life that has been planned for her yeah she cannot escape um so this note i just found very interesting so uh celine siama said that um one of the manifestos of the film was to get rid of the idea of a muse um she says that the muse 
the muse is an idea um, that was developed to minimize or hide the participation of women in the art industry. And she says muses are typically seen as silent, fetishized women who are inspiring just because they're beautiful. Um, and it, it totally erases, um, you know, the amount that they put into it. Because, you know, it's, you know, at, for a long time, women's opportunities in art were limited to being a model. They yeah. couldn't do art themselves. Um, and she is saying, you know, models are co-creating the art because they are, you know, one of the brains in the room. They're helping to guide the artist. It's not just... You're like, oh, I saw her, she's beautiful, so she's my muse. You know, it's they very much, it's a collaborative thing. So she wanted us to feel like it is collaborative. And I think that's part of why, um, you know, you get that first portrait where there is no collaboration and it's dead. It looks yeah. lifeless. Um, whereas then when they collaborate to make the art together, it looks, not only looks like Eloise, but it looks alive. It looks, you know, real. Yeah. Um, so she really wanted to bring in this idea that, you know, the model has as much or, you know, has quite a bit of the artistry or, you know, uh, quite a bit of influence on the art. And it's not just that they look pretty. They collaborate with the artist to a degree. So I thought that was interesting. So it's very much a film about, you know, women's achievements being minimized in a, in, a, in several senses of the world. word. Um... So budget and box office. So there's no real available budget for Ammonite. Um, all they've said is that it was less than 10 million pounds, which could mean anything. So that's about 13, 13 million US dollars. Um, so heavy. less than that is what they've said. But they haven't said exactly how much less than that. Uh, budget for Portrait of Lady on Fire was, was $5.4 million. Yeah. So we could estimate probably they're about the same. Less than ten million and five point four. I mean, five point four million is less than ten million. Um, in the box office, international box office, Ammonite made one point one three million. Mm. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as an independent French film, made twelve million. Um, you would think the movie with Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan would have done better than the, you know. No, uh, yeah, but it's the same as when we watched. Um... <laughs> Uh, sometimes oh, I can't remember. Never rarely, sometimes always. Yeah, and um, what was the other one? What was the other one called? Um, Unpregnant. Unpregnant. It was just one group of people bringing the scores down. Yeah, well, that's box office. Yeah. But I mean, but, I had heard of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But people read people's stupid ideas. You yeah. Know, I, I never read reviews. True. If I want to. I've watched enough movies, and I hope listeners at home have watched enough movies to make their own decisions. Yep. Like, reality is as box office matters to the people who produced it and nobody else. Yeah. You know, you're not going to watch a movie... Based on the box office. Based on the box office. You're not going to watch an art house movie hoping it gets a sequel. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's... You end up with craziness, like, I, I think we've mentioned it multiple times, or it could have been another group, but I definitely talked to you about it, the planned sequels to Gladiator. Right. Written by Nick Cave and friggin' having him release, um, like, um, Maximus uh, resurrected and fighting Nazis with Jesus, and, like, you know, <laughs> you, you don't... What? Like... <laughs> Box office only matters to producers. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to see a sequel to either of these films, but I probably will watch both films again. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of rating, I mean, Portrait of Lady and Fire has eight point one on IMDb, and Ammonite has six point uh, five, which is lower than it should be. I think, probably for both of them. Um, Portrait of Lady and Fire has pretty good um, percentages on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got ninety eight percent from critics at 92% from audiences, so yeah. that's not bad. Uh, whereas, and I just got 69% from critics and 85% from audiences. Uh, 69. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they're both pretty good movies. I mean, I, I would be quite happy recommending both of these films to people. Yeah. Yeah. You have anything else to say? Um, not a whole lot, do you? No. No? Um, okay, well, this is our first, our first LGBT-specific episode. Yeah. 
featuring not only two films about uh, queer relationships, but also by queer writer-directors. So I thought that was good. Um, and we do have another episode coming out in June that will also be LGBT-specific, so people can look forward to that. And this was definitely ladies first. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought these, this was a really nice um, duo of films to start off our LGBT films with. Yep. But if people have recommendations for other ones, um, we're going to try and do it every year due to LGBT films, or two, two sets of two LGBT films in, uh, in June every year. So um, I'm, yeah. ho- I'm hoping we don't run out. <laughs> so if people have suggestions for uh, queer films that are similar to each other, let us know. Or if people have suggestions for films in general that we should cover, absolutely, we will take those suggestions. And add them to the list. Yeah, we'll add them to the list. Actually, the the ones we're doing next are were suggested by a listener. Oh, okay. That listener is my mom, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> She's our number one fan. Um, anyway, yeah. So thank you all for listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at it takes two underscore pod or Facebook at it takes two pod, and our website is it takes two dot co dot nz. And now more than ever, stay safe out there, folks, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.